From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Justice Department is appealing a Texas federal judge's decision to invalidate the Affordable Care Act requirement that private health insurers fully cover preventive health screenings at no cost to patients. This comes four years after the same judge, Reed O'Connor, of the Northern District of Texas, tried to toss the entire ACA as unconstitutional. Of course, the Supreme Court reversed that ruling. O'Connor's latest decision kicks off a case that could also wind up at the Supreme Court and has financial implications for some 150 million Americans on employer-sponsored health plans. Here's White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre. It's yet another attack on the ability of Americans to make their own health care choices. Efforts to undermine this requirement are wrong, and they take us backwards, not forwards. Joining me is Lawrence Gostin, faculty director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. Tell us about this decision, what kinds of services it affects. It affects a whole host of highly effective prevention services. These include things like cancer screening, pregnancy care. They involve HIV medications, statins, hypertension screening, basically anything that, you know, a patient would go to the hospital for or to their doctor for to prevent disease that has very high cost-benefit ratio would be on the chopping block. So this is really serious. Of, you know, of all of the attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, and basically it's had eight trips to the United States Supreme Court, which is unprecedented, almost a hundred attempts to repeal it. And now this would gut the most important part of the Affordable Care Act, which is prevention. And it's important to mention that prevention is mentioned more than 200 times in the Affordable Care Act. That's the heart and soul of uh, this law. And here we've got a very conservative judge known hostile to the ACA, who's in the past struck the whole law down only to be overturned, issuing a nationwide injunction against preventive care services. So does this potentially affect not just people who get insurance through Obamacare, but all Americans with private health care coverage? Yes, it includes most people with private health insurance. And that private health insurance Now, I don't anticipate that insurers will stop covering these, but I do anticipate that many of them, not all, will charge a hefty copay or deductible, and that may not affect 
the richest people, but um, we know that for low and working class Americans, they will stay away from their doctor if they have to pay for these prevention services. Was this legal challenge brought on religious grounds? Because I don't see what all these preventive care services have to do with religion. They were brought on two grounds. One was that uh, the United States Preventative Services Task Force was not duly authorized, appointed by the president, ratified by the Senate, and doesn't have enough oversight by the secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services. And the judge ruled that the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which recommends these cost-free prevention services, that it violated the Constitution's Appointments Clause. And then there was a separate claim saying that pre-exposure prophylaxis, known as PrEP, that actually reduces the risk of HIV from sexual transmission by nearly 99% and from injection drug use by at least 74%, that that violates religious freedom because uh, somehow they would be complicit in encouraging behaviors like uh, homosexual behavior or drug injection behavior that they don't agree with, which of course is a a horrible slippery slope if applied to all healthcare services. Judge O'Connor's reasoning in other opinions has been ridiculed. I mean, what is he basing this on? Do you think that this has any staying power? I think it's a very weakly reasoned opinion. And ordinarily, I would just say, well, don't worry about it. It'll be overturned on appeal. But that's far from certain that this will happen because it's going to a very conservative court of appeal, the Fifth Circuit. And it's also going to the Supreme Court, possibly, maybe likely. And both the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court have been increasingly sympathetic to religious freedom claims. And they've also been quite aggressive in attempts to claw back public health and safety authorities and the administrative state. And so while perhaps the appointments clause would not fare well with the Supreme Court, it could be widened to the non-delegation doctrine, where there's considerable support in the court saying that you know Congress didn't delegate sufficient criteria for the for the task force to make its decisions. But in my view, it did, because it basically told the task force to use science and the best available evidence. And after all, what more would the American public or Congress expect to make decisions about which services to provide at no cost than how effective they are and what the evidence is for them? So this seems to me something that I'm worried about for in its appeal. It could be devastating for um, the Affordable Care Act and for the the health of the American population. But I'm not 100% certain that a very conservative judiciary is going to be sympathetic to the Affordable Care Act. The Supreme Court has grappled with the Affordable Care Act before and refused to strike it down. Do you think the composition of the current court is so different that it's a concern? Uh, Yes. The composition of the court is very different. I mean, you remember in the most consequential, the very first attempt to overturn the ACA, um, it was saved by the chief justice. But the chief justice is no longer in the majority of the court. And 
there are at least five justices that seem to be emboldened and don't really have the same level of respect for the institution of the Supreme Court as just as Chief Justice Roberts has. So they've spent the last term and the current possibly decisions coming up that really dismantle the administrative state from public health and safety and COVID rules through to um, the environment. And so I think um, we should not take for granted that the ACA is saved and will be saved. And particularly, it would be a great tragedy if of all of the various attempts to, to dismantle and weaken the Affordable Care Act, if the heart of the act, which is prevention, were to suffer this kind of blow. And remember, prevention is really cost-effective. It's cheap. It prevents, just for example, it's slashed cervical cancer rates by something like 75%. It's prevented tens of thousands of HIV infections. It's helped people survive from high blood pressure and cardiovascular problems. Women with cervical cancer or breast cancer, these are really fundamental services that Americans rely on. Wouldn't insurance companies want to keep those services to prevent higher costs down the road? You would think so. And that's why I think it's very possible that insurance companies will continue to cover them. But they may very well, many of them, if not most of them, charge large copays and deductibles, which will dissuade particularly poor and working class Americans from seeking um, these kinds of cost-effective preventive services. You know, being an insurer in the United States today is a a risky game because people keep changing their insurance. And so, yes, it may be that if somebody was going to stay with an insurance company for their whole life, that it would be better to, to do prevention. But if an insurer pays for prevention and then somebody goes to another insurance company and they benefit, the, the math doesn't doesn't figure for those insurance companies. So before the ACA, all I can say is that there were many insurers that did not cover these preventive cares, these preventive screenings, um, and most of them charged significant copays and deductibles. We may see a return of that. And, you know, it's possible that, you know, tomorrow or next week or next month, a woman will go for a pap smear or breast cancer screening or a man will go for prostate cancer screening and they'll find that it's not covered. So what I find a little bit confusing is that, you know, the Republicans were out to get Obamacare, right, for lack of a better word. And it proved to be so popular across the nation. So why are they still attacking it? I mean, it's it's a really popular program. It is. There is a total disconnect in your question. It's absolutely well taken. You would think after all of after 12 years of the Affordable Care Act, it's almost unfathomable to think that it's still being attacked. It is widely popular, but there are still, you know, deeply conservative pockets of opinion. There are minorities, deeply religious opinion. Again, there are minorities. 
But it only takes, you know, one person, one business to bring a lawsuit. And it only takes, you know, one judge to issue a nationwide injunction. And then um, the rest of it is a lottery. Um, We don't know what the appellate courts are going to do or what the Supreme Court is going to do. And we've seen in just this last term some real significant inroads into the administrative state. This is not the same Supreme Court um, that we, you know, saw in the heyday of the Roberts Court, where there was a certain balance, where there was, you know, caring about the institution itself and not straying too far off of its lane. We're not seeing that now. And that's why I think every American needs to be concerned. The Biden administration has said it's going to appeal this. And I take it it'll ask for the injunction issued by this Judge O'Connor to be stayed. Is the Fifth Circuit likely to grant that? I think it's possible that the Fifth Circuit would grant it. If it didn't, it, I think it would be a huge overreach because, you know, given the fact that you've got you know, a law that's been in place for 12 years, um, that these services are so widely embraced by the American public, um, that they're so cost-effective that you would think that until there could be a, a thorough review of the merits that they would stay it. So I think it's possible that that will happen. I'm just not convinced about what the Fifth Circuit will do when it decides on the merits. This opinion, whether it's because of the day it came out in the midst of all the Trump news, but it didn't get that much attention. And I'm wondering if it's because people have become inured to these attacks on Obamacare and they just think, oh, another attack, it'll be fine. I think that's part of it, you know, but, you know, I can tell you that I had an op-ed due to run in a very major um, news outlet, and they pulled it because, for like it or not, um, former President Trump seems to suck all of the air out of the room. So that was part of it. I think part of it is, is just fatigue with the attacks on the Affordable Care Act and just assumption that everything will be all right. But also, um, there was this huge bombshell for American democracy that seemed to have crowded out a lot of the discussion. We assume it, it's going to go up to the Supreme Court. How long will it take? It depends on how long the circuit takes and um, whether there's an expedited appeal. I mean, I think it's possible that it could happen within months um, up to the court, especially if um, you have at stake um, something so consequential um, to the health and safety of the American population. Um, we're not talking about something trivial here. We're talking about something that um, will cost lives, um, and it could cost a lot of lives. And again, this is from one judge in Texas. We've seen this time and again how one judge in Texas issues a nationwide injunction. Yeah. That affects us all. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, yeah, one judge in Texas. Another example is is that, you know, the CDC issued a a mask mandate um, for for, uh, airplane travel. um, And one judge in the middle of Florida issued a nationwide injunction and pulled the whole plug on it. And we still haven't had an appeal on it, uh, decision on appeal. Um, So, yeah, this, you know, we really shouldn't have a single conservative or liberal judge 
um, be making national policy that has such consequence for the American population. It's just simply wrong. Um, and I think the American public should really recall, recoil in horror at the fact that you know, one conservative lay judge um, in the middle of the country um, can take down in it the entire edifice of preventive health care in America. And we're waiting for a judge in Amarillo, Texas, Matthew Kazmarek, to see whether or not he's going to issue a nationwide injunction against the abortion pill and basically overrule what the FDA decided decades ago. Absolutely. I'm keeping a close eye on that. Um, and you've got a, uh, you know, an FDA-approved medication. More than 50% of all abortions are through that abortion medication. There's another example of where a single federal judge with the health of American women hang in the balance because of one judge. It just it defies common sense. Yeah, they've gone from forum shopping to judge shopping, looking for specific judges to bring these cases to. Thanks so much, Lawrence. That's Lawrence Gostin, faculty director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is a prepaid call from Adnan Sayed. Adnan Syed's case became famous and suspect because of the 2014 podcast, Serial. Then last September, Syed walked out of prison after serving 23 years for the murder of his former high school girlfriend. It seemed like the case was over in October when prosecutors dropped the charges against him, saying DNA evidence had excluded him. But then last week... The Appellate Court of Maryland reinstated Syed's conviction. The reason? The victim's family hadn't received enough notice of the September hearing where Syed won his release. Syed has said the appeal just increases the suffering for both families. We definitely understand that Hayes' family has suffered so much, and they continue to suffer. And I just, it's just that we suffer too. And we just hope that the court today just takes notice of that, that we're a family that suffers also. Joining me is appellate attorney Stephen Klepper, a principal with Cramon and Graham. Why was Syed's murder conviction reinstated last week by the Appellate Court of Maryland? What happened was that the Appellate Court of Maryland decided that the victim representative, Mr. Lee, who is the brother of the victim, Heyman Lee, that he received inadequate notice. It was one business day before the hearing. It was a Friday before a Monday hearing. And the infringement on his rights under the Maryland uh, victims laws was that he was only able to attend by Zoom rather than in person because he desired to attend in person and everyone else was able to attend in person. As I understand it, the judge allowed him to address the court, which the law doesn't expressly give victims the right 
to speak at these kinds of hearings. So it seems like a technicality, a procedure he did attend by Zoom. So this whole thing is about him not being able to be there in person? Yes, that is actually it. And, you know, for so many years, we've talked about criminal justice rights as, you know, the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule is a technicality. What happened here was that the majority held in great detail that Mr. Lee did not have the right to address the court. He did not have the right to cross-examine any witnesses. He did not have the right to present or attack any evidence. That was what he was arguing, that he, as the victim representative, had that right. And all three judges rejected those arguments for what he said he was entitled to do at the hearing. And instead, what the majority held was that, well, he has a right to dignity under the Maryland Constitution, and that right of dignity was violated by the fact that he had to attend by Zoom when everyone who lived locally or had the means to fly in was able to attend in person. It's stunning to me because defendants appear for hearings by Zoom, don't they? They do. Uh, They did very much through the pandemic. And the court acknowledges that for the pandemic, many defendants who wanted to attend in person did not have that opportunity. When their most precious rights protected by due process of law were at stake. And the court said yes, but the court was open and people were able to attend. And because Mr. Lee didn't have the required notice, it was an affront to his dignity as the victim representative. So uh, it is fairly hard to wrap one's mind around. And one of the things I find very interesting here is that what Mr. Lee was arguing he had a right to do was to have the opportunity to prepare for the hearing that he could present his best statement that he could so that he could cross-examine any witnesses, so he could put on any evidence of guilt or attack the evidence being put forward of actual innocence. And if that was the claim, which it was, well then, notice so short may well have been prejudicial error. Prejudicial error means error that is not harmless. And much of the time, what defendants do is they say, well, this right was violated, and the courts say, well, yes, your right was violated, but it is harmless error. And on the civil side all the time, there are many cases here in Maryland that say, well, yes, there was a right to have a hearing on this motion for summary judgment or motion to dismiss, but even though the court violated that right, you can't identify anything that would have happened differently had the hearing occurred, and so does harmless error. And so what the court has essentially done in rejecting Mr. Lee's contentions about what he had the right to do, and yet still reversing, means that this is akin to what's called structural error. A structural error means it's impossible to have harmless error. This is structural. And that just seems like a very strong ruling to me. So his lawyer says they're going to challenge the part of the appellate ruling where Lee asked to be able to, as you mentioned, actively challenge in court the prosecutor's evidence that the case should be dismissed. But it seems like you're getting into a whole different thing if you start allowing victims to interfere with the actual you know, merits of a case. I'm going to stick to the Maryland Constitution because what the Maryland Constitution does is that it gives the state's attorney the exclusive right 
to be the prosecutor in the trial courts, except when the General Assembly says otherwise. And what all three judges did was they looked through and said, here are some parts where, let's say, a victim has a right to be heard, a right to present an impact statement. And they said, not even that is here. And so in this context, it seems quite a stretch to say that there was an affirmative right, not merely to attend and to present an impact statement, but to act as a prosecutor when the state's attorney would not. And there already are circumstances where the General Assembly has said, yes, we will have the attorney general be the prosecutor. It will be someone other than the state's attorney who will prosecute this case. But there has been no provision in this law for anyone to be the one to make arguments of guilt when the prosecution isn't. And that's a pretty conspicuous omission because this statutory provision was created for situations in which the state's attorney believes that that the defendant has a right to a new trial or a right to acquittal. And so everyone understood that this would be something that would not be a traditional adversarial proceeding. And so the absence of something that would say this third party has the right to act as prosecutor, well, that, that's something that's just not there in the statute. The court's order to reinstate his conviction and sentence doesn't go into effect for 60 days. So during that time, a new hearing will be scheduled. So if you look at this, the only thing that would be different in the new hearing is that young Lee would be given notice to attend in person, would be there in person. But there's a new state's attorney in Baltimore. Could he have a different position on the case? It is possible. And I do not believe that Mr. Bates, our new state's attorney, has taken a public position on what his intent is. He previously, in the case of Keith Davis Jr., who had undergone five trials, he dropped those charges rather than doing a sixth trial, which was uh, controversial in some quarters. And so what I don't know is whether he is going to do essentially the same thing with Mr. Syed's case. And I think a lot of us are sitting, waiting, watching. And I believe, reading the opinion that there would be jurisdiction to hold a new hearing during the 60-day period. And during this 60-day period, what could happen uh, would be, yes, that the vacatur would then be redone the same ruling. But even in that circumstance, Mr. Bates would then have the ability to decide, well, I'm going to retry rather than dismiss the charges because the appellate court of Maryland held that the prior dismissal was a nullity. I mean, there are a lot of times where prosecutors accept plea deals and the victim's family doesn't agree with the plea deal. So if you start allowing victims' families to be the prosecutors, that opens up a Pandora's box. Well, from my perspective, yes, it would. And at the same time, uh, we have this constitutional right for victims to be, to be treated with dignity. And what the appellate court of Maryland held here was that, yes, this was a particular affront, and it contained language that this was unique. Normally, the state's attorney has unfettered discretion to enter a null process, a dismissal of charges. But under these unique circumstances, it was a nullity. 
And in so many ways, this case has created unusual legal questions. And what I certainly find frustrating here, and that I've written about in Bloomberg Law, is that Syed keeps losing by one-vote margins on matters that weren't really what the state, or in this case, the victim, were arguing. And so what I would have liked would have been many years ago. Many years ago, I wrote uh, right after Judge uh, Welch had entered the new trial order, I wrote an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun saying, here are the reasons just to have a new trial. Don't appeal this. But they appealed it. And if we had had a new trial many years ago, instead of all of these people who very much believe he's guilty and people very, very much believe he's innocent, instead of them having to have that hypothetical argument, you could actually have had a trial in front of a jury. And now strange things just keep happening. Uh, What I would say is that reading the majority opinion, what they very clearly feel is that the state's attorney engaged in behavior that was designed to thwart appellate review. And that was very concerning for them. And appellate courts do not like having their review thwarted. And at the same time, what Judge Berger kept saying at the oral argument, and essentially in his opinion, is the criminal defendants have rights too. Due process is there for the criminal defendants. That is what has always been written in the U.S. Constitution and in the state constitution. And so having this very strange finding here that Mr. Lee had no right other than to simply be present and that it harmed his substantial rights in a way to render a nullity what happened before because he had to attend by Zoom rather than in person. It's just odd. And it is very hard for me to imagine any other case that would have generated such an odd opinion. And for so long, I have heard people say, well, you know, it's Mr. Syed who is trying to exploit that, that this case has received an unusual amount of attention and so wants special treatment. Now, my response to that usually is, is that, yes, Mr. Syed's case received an unusual amount of attention, and it resulted in finding evidence that really draws into question the predicate for his conviction. And even the state recognized in the prior appeal that, yes, they would have had to prove a different time when Heyman Lee died, a completely different timeline. And my response in all of this is, is that, well, maybe this means that there are more people in prison who are innocent than we want to admit, and that Mr. Syed should not be penalized for the fact that this has drawn so much publicity. Maybe what this should do is is to cause us to say, are there too many barriers for people to prove their innocence, particularly when they are serving a life sentence? Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Stephen Klepper of Cramen and Graham. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast, You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.